From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, I'm Lisa Hamilton, and this is CaseyCast. At the Casey Foundation, we work to build a brighter future for children and families. To realize such a future, kids need financially stable homes with the resources to meet their needs. That's where good jobs for parents come in. But low-income families and individuals face a range of challenges to getting, keeping, and succeeding in a job. To support these families, Casey works with organizations across the country to reduce barriers to employment. One such partner is the National Skills Coalition, which brings together businesses, community organizations, and workforce development organizations to help workers increase and improve their skills. Joining us today is Brooke Dorenzis, the National Skills Coalition's State Policy and Network Director since 2014. Welcome, Brooke. Thank you. We're also talking with one of Brooke's local partners, Rob Garcia. He's the Senior Manager of Workforce Development Initiatives at the Cobb County Chamber of Commerce in Georgia. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Glad to be here, Lisa. Well, great. Um, This is uh, absolutely a timely conversation that the whole country's uh, having around jobs, so I'm excited to talk to two folks who are so knowledgeable in this space. I guess the first thing we ought to talk about is um, what are the skills that workers need these days? As we talk about workforce development, what is it we need to be thinking about? Brooke, let's start with you. Sure. Thanks, Lisa. So today's economy is a skilled economy. The vast majority of jobs in the labor market today require some sort of education or training beyond a high school degree. So it's a skilled economy. Now, what do we mean when we use the term skills? Well, I think there's a few different categories. For one, we mean technical skills. These are the types of skills that are required to do a particular occupation. It can be coding for a computer program. It can be knowing how to operate or fix an advanced piece of machinery. It can be knowing how to provide a set of uh, medical services in a hospital setting. So technical skills are one issue. I think another issue are foundational skills, reading, writing, language, math skills. And that goes without saying that that's a skill set, but I think it's important for listeners to know that there are 36 million adults in the United States that have low basic literacy and numeracy Mm. skills. And when you think about that number, just to give a sense of scale, that is equal to the populations of the states of Minnesota, Michigan, and New York combined. Wow. Now, most of those adults are working, but they're working in low-wage jobs. And so there's a need to think about improving those foundational skills as well if we're going to help people find better-paying jobs. And then the third kind of set of skills that we hear a lot about, particularly from employers, are these skills that are critical or fundamental for today's workforce. And they're things um, that are not captured in technical skill but are important across all types of occupations and important across different levels of education. And these are skills like problem solving, critical thinking, teamwork. So obviously those technical skills are a huge priority for businesses that are looking for talent, um, especially as many of those uh, middle-skilled abilities are, are, are really hard to find. Uh, but when we surveyed about a dozen, two or three dozen uh, business leaders in our community, the single most important type of skill that every industry sector highlighted were soft skills. Uh, and that's exactly what you mentioned, Brooke, the ability to write and communicate effectively, critically thinking, working together and collaboratively, and punctuality uh, were some of those that were cited. Hmm. Uh, and some of those are real skills that we can really help develop, and some of them may stem from other challenges. Punctuality, for example, may be as related to transportation issues as anything else. So, Brooke, you mentioned the number of uh, jobs that require a certain amount of um, 
education. Um, and we hear a lot about this question of middle skill jobs. Rob just mentioned that. Could you explain to our listeners the difference between sort of low skill, middle skill, and, and higher skill jobs? Sure. So the way that we classify that at National Skills Coalition, and I'll start with middle skills because they're they're in the middle of the labor market and they're in an area where we focus, are skills that require some form of education or training beyond a high school degree, but not a four-year bachelor's degree. And these jobs make up almost half of the jobs in the U.S labor market. Lower skill jobs tend to be those jobs that require a high school degree or less. And then high skill jobs are those jobs that require a bachelor's degree or more. But again, middle skill jobs also make up the plurality of jobs in the labor market. um, And they're expected to continue to have strong demand. We often hear about a middle skills gap. Um, Could you talk a bit about what it is people are describing there? Sure. So, as I said, more than half of the jobs in the U.S. labor market are middle-skilled jobs. So, 54% of jobs in the U.S. labor market require some form of education or training beyond high school, but not a four-year degree. At the same time, we're not training enough people with those middle skills to meet that demand. So despite the fact that those jobs are 54% of all jobs in the U.S., only 43% of workers are trained to the middle skill level. And that's what we call the skill gap right there. And that skill gap creates challenges for both workers and businesses. It creates challenges for workers who might be lower skilled and want an opportunity to grow their skills so they can move into a better paying job or advance within their careers. And it creates challenges for businesses who want to be able to grow their businesses but need a skilled workforce in order to do so. Hmm. Rob, could you um, say a bit about how this gap plays out in your local community? Sure. So as Brooke mentioned, there's a gap just in terms of the number of people trained for those jobs, right? She mentioned 43% have the training for what's about 54% of the jobs. Uh, but the concern grows even more when you consider that retirement cliffs that some industries are facing are, are, are really starting to take effect. Mm. Um, so, for example, when we surveyed businesses in our community about the jobs they had today, but also the jobs they expected to create, we were short by about 30,000 registered nurses in our hospitals, but not just registered nurses. We were short on practical nurses and patient care technicians and a lot of those middle-skilled jobs um, that are not only short on the talent themselves, uh, but the talent they have already uh, is expected to retire. And we mm-hmm. need to make sure we're filling that uh, with not just more workers, but a pipeline uh, that's sustainable and, and continues to produce that skilled talent. Another example for us was that construction companies are expecting almost half of the the veteran trade laborers to retire within the next 10 years. And Mm -hmm. so we've really got to make sure that 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 skilled labor is coming in now so that they have experience and and growth uh, in in their field by the time that retirement cliff really takes effect. Are you seeing this demand for middle-skilled jobs in specific industries? You mentioned construction and health care, Rob. I wondered um, if you or Brooke are seeing... uh, this demand in particular areas, or is it across the board? To a degree, we experience it across the board, but certainly there are industries that are particularly affected. Uh, Manufacturing is another example where uh, the labor market in manufacturing has gone from historically being pretty low-skilled work to now being much more in in, uh, that middle-skilled area with a lot of technical expertise um, that in some ways even mirrors coding in, in, in computer science types of jobs. Uh, and so as the manufacturing sector continues to grow, so does their demand for middle-skilled talent. Uh, uh, distribution and logistics is another great example of a huge gap for that middle-skilled labor. 
So I guess we ought to shift to talking about what we can do in order to help uh, prepare workers um, for these positions. Brooke, could you talk a bit about um, the National Skills Coalition and the the work you do to try to help our workforce um, get the training it needs to qualify for these jobs? Sure. So we are, as our name suggests, a broad-based coalition of uh, community colleges, community-based organizations, workforce development providers, labor organizations, business organizations, and others who are coming together around a policy agenda at the federal level and within the states that can be used to advance skills so that every worker in every industry has the skills it needs to compete and succeed. You know, we think of training as something that is sort of an education that's happening, and it's not always as clear what role policy plays in that. So first, maybe why don't we talk about the variety of stakeholders that have to help this happen and then how policy helps make this happen. So skills issues span a host of different community partners, as you just mentioned. And so it's not uncommon to see um, skills issues being talked about in the K through 12 system, in the higher education system, in the workforce system, by community-based organizations and human service organizations, et cetera. And so one of the things that we do is look for us training solutions that bring those players together to help people people get the skills that they need. Is that part of the problem? That it does take all of these different stakeholders to try to craft solutions? Well, I think that all of those different stakeholders play a really important role because workers have different skill needs and may uh, go to different providers to help meet those skill needs. But I think one of the things that we have been looking at is ways that those partners can work together around a common solution. So industry or sector partnerships, for example, are one of the proven strategies for helping to meet workers and businesses' needs in the skill space. And that's a strategy that we have looked at on the ground um, to inform our recommendations around best policies. So what industry or sector partnerships do is they bring together multiple employers within a particular industry that have a common skills need. They're not able to find or hire the trained workers that they need in order to grow. And so they have this common skills need. It's common across the industry. The industry partnership usually has a central convener who brings those employers together to identify really what are their skill needs. What are they having trouble uh, with from a skills perspective? Um, What are the common skill standards that they're looking for across their businesses? And once they identify what those skill needs look like, they work with education and training partners, which can be community-based organizations, it can be community colleges, it can be the workforce system, it can be a combination of those partners. They work with those partners to craft a training program that really responds to that set of skill needs that employers have together. So it's training people with the skills that they've identified there's a need for. And employers are oftentimes engaged in that training with those other partners. So they may be engaged um, by helping to develop or refine a curriculum for the training program. So that they know when these folks finish this program, they're going to meet the specific needs. That's right. And sometimes they may even be involved by providing equipment or instructors. Hmm. Um, Sometimes workers leave a training program with a credential that demonstrates that they've gone through a training program that has given them this set of skills. And if industry or employers recognize those credentials, then it can really help them when they're looking for a job. And then finally, sector partnerships oftentimes 
when workers complete a training program, do that matching between the employers who sit around the table and have openings and workers who are looking for a job to help facilitate that process. Oh, that's great. Rob, why don't I understand you all have a um, couple of sector partnerships there in Cobb County. Could you tell us a bit about what it looks like locally? Yeah, so I'll talk uh, specifically about one we call CHAMP. Uh, It's one of our regional sector partnerships across Metro Atlanta, um, and it's really a partnership of our healthcare industry. And I'll say locally, at the very, very local level, we tried to begin this conversation among healthcare partners here in Cobb County, and we got our hospitals together and started asking them about their workforce needs, and they kind of looked at their competitor to their left and their competitor to their right, and were not immediately forthcoming (laughs) with us, and and we we had to figure out how to crack that nut. Mm. Um, But fortunately, the Georgia Hospitals Association uh, and a group called Atlanta Career Rise really helped us. Um, develop that sense of collaboration within the healthcare industry. Uh, and they got that kicked off. And so we call it CHAMP. Uh, and there are really three areas of need that hospitals ha- helped identify. And so right there, um, the employers were necessary to help identify what those need areas were. Um, there had entry-level needs, like the environmental techs that help, in the, they're really the, the front line of, of infection prevention. They help make sure that um, a room is, is, is clean and ready for a new patient, um, and, and they take care of that environmental uh, area in the hospital, as well as the food service providers. That's a huge part of the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also identified the middle-skilled areas, uh, which are really your patient care technicians, your medical assistants, your medical coders, uh, sometimes your patient admission and your revenue folks on the non-clinical side um, that need that middle-skilled type of training. And then they talked about the high-skilled needs they have that looked a little bit more like your bachelor's in science and nursing, mm-hmm. your registered nurses and those folks. Um, and so uh, what CHAMP did, it's, it's got every major healthcare system for Metro Atlanta together, as well as all five of the technical, college, uh, technical colleges that service Metro Atlanta. Uh, we've got K-12 partners in the room, uh, and one really key leading partner has actually been Shay Watkins from the Center for Working Families, okay. uh, who has really helped us identify uh, what, what those barriers are to that initial stage of employment and how we cross those. Um, and so a great quick example is for that middle-skilled area, those patient care technicians and, and medical assistants and medical coders, um, the, the efforts we've had for the entry-level jobs um, are, are really great braiding together of SNAP, SNAP ENT funding, so a, a great funding source uh, for, for low-income individuals seeking employment. Uh, but if they complete that training and, and find that job and that entry level through the program we've developed, hospitals have agreed that once there's been six months of successful employment mm-hmm. for those entry-level folks that, that we help train and, and get plugged in, they will use tuition reimbursement and other supports within the hospital to upskill those folks to those mm. those middle skilled job needs that they've got, and so once they set what the needs were and we built an infrastructure around them, the the medical community really stepped forward and said, okay, from there, here's how we'll continue to build on their development and career mm. advancement that helps both that worker and our hospital with the job needs that we have. I guess how large is this pipeline? How many folks are going through uh, this program? Is it ongoing throughout the year? Sure. So we're piloting each of these cohorts right now, um, and, and each of the areas between the entry-level, middle-skilled, and high-skilled uh, kind of verticals each have their own training structure. Mm. Um, so for the entry-level needs, uh, most, of the, most of the talent the hospitals hire in that environmental tech space or in the food service area um, do not actually have credentialing when they get hired, and oftentimes hospitals 
will will work with them to get the credentials they need um, to remain effective in those jobs. Um, so we're, our training program actually is kind of a boot camp to get some of those uh, those credentials. Mm-hmm. So they actually start at a higher level um, than the hospitals are typically able to find for that entry-level talent. Um, so for that, we, we, break, we partner with Goodwill. We partner with um, SNAP education and training dollars to help fund that training. Mm-hmm. And, and they usually complete that, um, as I understand, within a series of weeks, usually four to five weeks, uh, and they're ready to go to work. Um, and then, once the, as I mentioned, once they've been successfully employed for six months, that's where the group around the, those middle school areas really kick into gear. And mm-hmm. that's where uh, that can be longer training because uh, the, the hospitals will host that in-site. They'll have training on-site. And mm-hmm. so those individuals finish their work day and maybe stay for an evening and, and, and take their next course in that training. So that training may take longer, uh, but it's, it's partnering with current employment uh, so they're building upon the skills they have and the job they have and preparing for that next rung. So each of those areas has a different timetable, time has a different number of folks in the pipeline, gotcha. and we're really building them out um, step by step at the present moment. But it sounds like it's really happening through a robust engagement with the business community. Um, and when we talk about this work, um, I don't know that folks always appreciate how um, important it is to have business at the table. You're with the, the Chamber of Commerce. How has business really um, understood their, their role in, in taking up this challenge? Sure. So for this sector partnership, we wouldn't have known really what the job needs were for hospitals, where the pain points were, if they didn't help us identify them. Mm. So, for example, we were looking at CNAs um, as, as a, a job need, and, and we found that uh, many hospitals aren't really employing CNAs anymore because there's a new, there's a patient care technician role that's kind of an upskilled CNA, oh, and that's really what they need. Mm. We wouldn't have gotten that direction without their involvement. Oh. It's really crucial that business is there just so that these programs we build are relevant and that we're actually connecting uh, these folks with employment at the end of the program. That's great. Uh, but they're also important for us because these are not, the, these are not needs that are going to go away. We're not just meeting businesses' current needs. But a lot of times as businesses expand, they're creating new types of jobs and need new sets of skills. And so the more we can uh, anticipate the skills the businesses are going to need and the jobs they're going to create, the better we can begin proactively developing that workforce pipeline. That's great. You know, Brooke, you um, started talking about sector partnerships, which is one way that we can go about trying to address skills needs of workers. But we're hearing more about apprenticeships as a way that uh, can can help accelerate growth for workers, um, which has an even deeper connection, as I assume, to business. Talk, talk a bit about the growth of apprenticeships. Sure. So, so apprenticeships really provide Um, an opportunity for workers to have a paid job that's combined with on-the-job training and other types of education. So workers are able to be able to earn money while they're learning a new skill and building a new skill. And so there's a clear benefit to workers because they don't have to choose between whether they're going to go immediately to work or take time off to build their skill. They're Mm -hmm. able to do both. And then there's a benefit for employers who host apprenticeships because they're able to train their workforce with the skill set they need. So that's really what 
apprenticeship looks like. Now, it's been common um, for apprenticeships to be in the building trades or in manufacturing, but increasingly we are seeing interest by a number of industries in adopting an apprenticeship model. And so healthcare, information technology, others are talking about opportunities to adopt an apprenticeship model. And one of the things that we're seeing states and regions do is think about what supports uh, businesses and employers need to be able to host apprenticeships and start an apprenticeship program. And so um, there are states who are thinking about the role that they can play as intermediaries or that their industry partnerships can play as intermediaries in particular regions um, to really help employers think about what their apprenticeship programs can look like, how they get that apprenticeship program up and running, and also how they can connect to other organizations that can provide some of the classroom training and the support services that workers may need. Are there specific requirements around apprenticeships? We certainly have heard lots about them with European models and um, sort of German manufacturing, but what sort of qualifies as an apprentice. Yes, so there's a registered apprenticeship program Mm -hmm. in the United States um, that can connect registered apprenticeships and and sets out apprenticeship models and is approved in order uh, to have an apprenticeship program. Mm -hmm. Apprenticeship is broadly um, part of of work-based learning, and so work-based learning really does combine, you know, paid employment with on-the-job training and education. And in some cases, we're seeing things like on-the-job training um, or uh, long-term skills internships for young people who may be out of school and out of work as a way to get reconnected to the workforce system. Rob, you mentioned construction as one of the areas that is going to see big changes in the the workforce over time, and that's certainly in in the area where apprenticeships have been popular. Are you seeing apprenticeship programs uh, gaining traction in your community? They am, and 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 they're gaining traction really in a lot of sectors. Uh, construction is is an often cited example for apprenticeships, and 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 that's. Uh, we're seeing a lot of energy around uh, apprenticeship development for construction. But really the best example I can give in Georgia is, is a manufacturing apprenticeship um, that happened in partnership with what's called the Central Education Center in, in Coweta County. Uh, that's a college and career academy for high school students that can either be working or, or uh, dual enrolling in, in technical education or, or university while they're in high school. Uh, and so a great model that they've developed, uh, you mentioned there are different types of apprenticeships. This is a, a German apprenticeship model. So those students begin their apprenticeship their sophomore year, and by the time they graduate, they graduate with a high school diploma, of course, but they also graduate with an associate's degree as industrial maintenance technicians. They've been paid up to about $20,000 over the course of the three years they've been apprentices. Uh, every one of the, the students in the pilot year for that German apprenticeship model was offered a job. Uh, paying about $40,000 a year with the company that they did their apprenticeship with. And they got what's called a German apprenticeship certificate from the German Chamber of Commerce, Mm -hmm. which is internationally recognized as as a a standard of excellence for apprenticeships um, in in the manufacturing sector. And so that level of partnership took about a half dozen manufacturers in the area, as well as both the local local school system and the local technical college, to, to build that out. Um, and the German Chamber of Commerce was a, was a big leader as well. Oh, that's great. Well, investing in the skills of workers seems like something everybody could rally around. Um, certainly huge benefits for um, employees and their families um, and also for businesses that are that are looking to, to fill um, particular roles. But um, 
I get the sense we're not making as much traction as we could. What are some of the hurdles that we're facing, particularly in policy work that could help accelerate this? So one of the things that we do at National Skills Coalition is bring together that coalition of players that I mentioned, and we use their real-world expertise to help inform uh policy making around skills issues. And Rob may want to talk a little bit about how business leaders engage with us through our Business Leaders United effort. Um, I think there are some benefits when it comes to the skills issue in in the policy world. Um, one is that there is a lot of bipartisan support for skills issues. And I think there is general consensus on the need for a skilled workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, however, there are sometimes challenges with developing specific policy solutions and ways to invest in them at at the state level when you're talking about state skills policies. And so I think one of the challenges is that policy decisions and state budgets are often addressed in particular areas, as we mentioned, K through 12, (laughs) Mm -hmm. higher education, human resources, workforce, workforce. and skills are part of all of those. Mm -hmm. And so providing opportunities to think about what the skills thread is across those agencies and how we can align and coordinate is key. Um, I think a second issue is although there's recognition that a skilled workforce is critically important, it's not always easy to think about investing in skills. However, I would say that investment in skills by states is going to be really critical if states are looking to close the skill gap we Mm -hmm. talked about. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note that state investments don't need to stand alone. There's really an opportunity to use state investments to leverage federal investments in higher education and human resources and workforce development. There's an opportunity to leverage uh, the private sector's investments in skills training for their employees. And there's an opportunity to leverage community and philanthropic investments in this space. And so there's really an opportunity when making investments to think about the ways that can, can leverage these other investors in the system. And then I think a, a third challenge in the policy front comes to the need for better data. We just need not just better data, but better data tools that policymakers can use to understand how different education and training programs are working together to prepare people with v- different skill needs mm-hmm. uh, for the jobs that are in demand in their regions. And so if we had that better data, it would allow policymakers to see what's working and how it's working and for whom it's working. But it also might let them have some answers to the first two challenges I raised around how you can align different programs and how you can make investments where investment is needed. Is there work being done on a policy level to even look at these foundational barriers that folks are having? If you have low literacy skills, it seems like that's going to be a barrier no matter what area you're trying to progress in. Yes. So there's a lot of work being done to think about how states can support this model, which is called integrated education and training. This is a model that was developed in Washington state that really integrates the teaching of basic skills, literacy, numeracy, with occupational skills. And because those basic skills are taught in the context of what one needs to know for the job they're training for, it works. Mm-hmm. So if I'm training to become a plumber, my math skills might make a little more sense <laughs> if they're provided in the context of a plumbing problem that mm-hmm. I'm trying to solve. Mm-hmm. So Washington State rolled out this program. It's called IBEST. It stands for Integrated Basic Education, Education Skills, and Training. Skills and training. <laughs> You've got it. 
And that program is now being replicated in places throughout the country. Well, right. there's a role that state policy can play in funding the replication of that and providing technical assistance to local regions who are trying to do it in terms of fostering collaboration between the organizations that are providing adult education and organizations that are providing occupational skills training. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not the same organization. And, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of work for state policy to do in terms of thinking about providing those on-ramps to post-secondary education and training for people who have foundational skill needs. Gotcha. What about there in Georgia, Rob? Are there particular policy solutions that you've seen already help or that uh, you and your partners at the chamber are thinking about? Well, sure. And and I'll also add to that, uh, there are Groups called workforce investment boards all around the country, and and I I sit on ours our local one here in Cobb County, uh, but those work for, workforce investment boards leverage federal dollars, a, a series of federal grants, uh, each of which are targeted for a different uh, a different need, a different workforce area. So when you talk about those fundamental needs, um, there's a lot of federal funding and a lot of support around literacy because it's so crucial and fundamental for the workforce system, as well as other types of more technical training, uh, more more directly connected with, with careers. And so those workforce investment boards end up being a great cross-section of a lot of that type of work. Mm. Um, but I'll also say from a policy side, uh, Burke's exactly right. There's the, the, the workforce system is incredibly complicated. There's a lot of areas um, that, that really are fashioned together to make it work. And so one big policy need we have is that our policymakers are, are, are very familiar with chambers of commerce. They're very familiar with groups like National Skills Coalition. In some cases, they're tired of seeing us and tired of hearing from us. And one of the most impactful voices they can hear from is the business community. Uh, and so Brooke mentioned uh, that Business Leaders United, a, a group that they've got, Georgia has founded the first local chapter of Business Leaders United. We call it Georgia Blue. Um, and that group is, is really starting to get our arms around what are the policy needs specific to Georgia? How can we equip our business community to be advocates both at the state and federal level for better skills policy? Um, and, and we're really following the model and the lead of, of Business Leaders United for Workforce Partnerships, that the big blue, is, as we've kind of come to call it, which is uh, right out of National Skills Coalition. And so we're tying our work to that federal group. Um, but really equipping business leaders to be those advocates can be as important in the policy arena as anything else because they're more they're more tangible examples. They're, they're clear voices of how skills policy affects those individual businesses. Um, and, and so that's a big focus of ours. Things like Perkins funding, which funds career and technical education. Uh, businesses badly need to see an increase in Perkins funding so that we can produce more folks uh, trained at that technical level. But many businesses may not be aware that Perkins is even what funds that. And so a big gap that we've got to overcome is the awareness that the business community has of the workforce system and how it works, the role they play and the advocates that that they can be for Mm -hmm. better skills policy. That's great. You mentioned, I think, higher education. Before we close, I wanted to ask a question about particularly community colleges, which play a big role in um, this sort of middle skills training. Do you have examples or uh, ideas of the role community colleges can play in this work? Sure. So community colleges are playing a variety of roles in training people for middle skill jobs. Uh, before we were talking about apprenticeship, mm-hmm. it's not uncommon for community colleges to provide the classroom instruction that's associated with apprenticeship. Um, and in fact, South Carolina, which has a large apprenticeship program called Apprenticeship Carolina, 
which acts as an intermediary and helps employers uh, register their apprenticeship programs, is based out of the community and technical college system. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to align the apprenticeship programs with the classroom offerings Mm -hmm. there. Another role uh, that we're seeing community colleges play is just with training for in-demand industries that lead to credentials. And so one of the things we're seeing is figuring out how adults who are trying to balance uh, work and family life, oftentimes on a lean budget, are, are able to afford to go go to college and enroll in training. And so we are seeing uh, states take on the role of providing financial aid to adults and working learners who need to be doing that balance. An example would be in Tennessee, where they have just made free community college and technical college available to all de- uh, all adults in mm-hmm. the system mm-hmm. through a last dollar scholarship. And so now that adults are able to go and earn a community college or technical degree for free, We're seeing employers think about how they can support their existing workforce to upgrade their skills through that program. And that can be, you know, employers thinking about whether there are additional costs that they could provide that aren't part of tuition Mm -hmm. but are crucial. And that can be books and supplies and fees, Mm -hmm. whether there's a role for employers to think about um, helping their employers learn about the program and what's available to them. And some employers are thinking about, you know, whether there are opportunities to think about scheduling or flex time so that employees can go and take courses. So that's a good example of a statewide policy that's allowing community colleges to do training and employers are thinking about how to respond. Great. Well, we certainly know that more families need good jobs and a path to opportunity so that they can support themselves and their families. Um, Do you see bright spots that give you a reason to be optimistic overall about the uh, trends for skills uh, building for our workforce? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think, again, there is consensus and recognition that we are in a skilled economy and that we need to build the skills of our workforce and that those skilled workforce uh, has benefits not just for the workers themselves, but for their families. Because if you're able to earn a higher wage and find a family supporting career, you're able to to bring uh, economic security to your family. And then, of course, as Rob has been discussing, there's a benefit for workers or for businesses as well. And Rob, um, just to give you the closing thought, do you see signs of uh, momentum uh, there in Georgia that give you and uh, your colleagues a reason to be excited and hopeful for uh, the prospects for folks to um, get the skills they're going to need to move forward? I do. I I think there's a lot of great momentum here in Georgia. A great example is our work really started uh, in about 2014 when the governor launched what he called the High Demand Career Initiative. And in many ways, the High Demand Career Initiative was was the playbook that the whole state operated out of. And so uh, when I got hired at at the Cobb Chamber, uh, to my knowledge, I was the first local chamber in the metro Atlanta area, at least, that, that had a full-time person solely focused on the workforce needs of, of the community. Mm. Since I got hired, I now have counterparts at nearly every local chamber uh, that, that, that we border, that we work with. And since workforce is such a regional effort, we've been taking it on together uh, and, and really working in a regional way that's uncommon for local chambers that tend to be competitive. Uh, we, we've all found ourselves working together on this and bringing our business partners together or, around the region. Uh, and so the momentum that HCCI really created, uh, the High Demand Career Initiative really created that that we could we could come behind and follow. 
um, and, and the amount of chambers and business communities that have said, this is a priority for us, and we want to be active players, we want to be leaders, and we want to be involved, is a really good sign that we're moving in the right direction, that we're picking up momentum and, and bringing the right partners to the table to make sure that we can start to really affect the workforce needs that, that are ahead of us. That's fantastic. Well, I tell you, it's been really exciting to hear about the new strategies folks are using from partnerships to apprenticeships um, to hear about the strong uh, uh, relationships that are developing at the local level from the business community, um, higher education, K through 12 education and uh, public agencies uh, and to hear the ways that policy is really helping to facilitate this. So thank you both for joining us today. It's been great to hear from you. Thank you so much for inviting us, Lisa. Thanks for having us. Sure. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please rate our show on Apple Podcasts to help others find us. You can ask questions and leave us feedback on Twitter by using the KCCast hashtag. To learn more about Casey and the work of our guests, you can find our show notes at aecf.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.